Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to everyone joining us for the long list episode of Read Smart, the official podcast for the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction. I'm Rezia Iqbal, John L. Weinberg Professor at Princeton University and your host from New York today. Following our Winner of Winners Award earlier in the year, I hope that you are as excited as we are to start another prize cycle and see which works of nonfiction will be battling it out for the top spot. Every year, the Bailey Gifford Prize recognizes and rewards the best in nonfiction publishing. This year, the Distinguished Judging Panel is chaired by Frederick Studman, literary editor of the Financial Times newspaper. He is joined by the award-winning author Andrea Wolfe, the writer and theatre critic for The Guardian, Arifa Akbar, the writer and historian Dr. Ruth Skur, journalist and critic Tanjil Rashid, and Andrew Haldane, chief executive of the Royal Society of Arts. Now, with the long list having just been announced, today I'm going to be talking to Arifa Akbar and Ruth Skur about the 13 books that they have chosen for this year's list. Welcome to you both, Ruth and Arifa. Hi. Hello. Hi. Very good to have you both here. Now, um, this is an enormous task that you have undertaken, a huge number of books to, to read. Before we talk about them in detail, just a few general questions. In the books that you, you read overall, did you notice a, a kind of theme, anything that you unites ultimately the long list that, that you have chosen? Arifa, let's start with you. We spread them across the table and we saw that climate uh, and the environment popped up either as overt themes or just embedded, you know, implicit in, in many of the books or or certainly some of the books that we, we picked. The the other thing that, that emerged, I think, as a, as a theme is history, how we record history, um, you know, what history is, it, is it really the past and are there new you know potentially radical uh, innovative ways to 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 do history that really struck you know and we've got we had a historian amongst us so it was a really rich discussion around that theme ruth you are the historian so uh to tell us generally what your impressions were of of anything that you think unites the long bit what I think is important to understand is this is a process and it's a conversation between the six judges in the room. And if you substituted in any one of those judges, you would have got a different long list. So this is very much um, the collective list that through all of our reading, we have agreed on and, and put forward. So I think you can definitely, now that we have the list, we can see themes that are coming through. Um, and we had no idea that that would be the case because we were literally judging each book on its own terms and then talking to one another about what we wanted to be on, on the long list. And in some ways, it's as much of a surprise to us as, as it will be to the readers. I wonder, though, when you talk about if you substituted any of the judges with another set of judges, perhaps a different list would have emerged. I, I wonder, though, whether there must just be some things that that are constant when you are choosing which books to be on the long list. And I'm thinking for very obvious things. I mean, I was a judge on this prize in 2017, and 
you know, something being well written, something that's innovative, those sorts of things are 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 true in any year, right? Aretha. I think you're right. We we discussed what we were looking for and you're right, they're universals. They are, you know, quality writing, the elegance of, of, of on the page, you know, of, of the of the writing. But also uh originality, as you said. Um, we really held in our minds that, you know, we were um looking at some books and also searching for books that were a lifetime's work. You know, they had a lifetime's deep thinking. They had you know, a lifetime's kind of writing and editing and making the writing elegant and beautiful. A set of judges might pick different books, but I think the quality, the kind of underlying qualities of those books are, are things like, you know, an astonishing read that you you sort of can't put down you're amazed and impressed at how this author has done this. The amount of work, the quality of work, the depth. You know, I was looking for depth, and I think a lot of us were. Uh, Ruth, I wonder about, though, that this, this being an enormous challenge, nevertheless, even if you go into it thinking these are the sorts of things we're looking for. I mean, you are sometimes having to judge not like with like because you have everything ranging from biography to science to history i mean that that there is a real challenge here isn't there yes and that's absolutely my point um we're trying to come up with our long list and then move forwards to the shortlist and an eventual winner and there are lots of extremely well written very very interesting books that were submitted that aren't on that list so then we have to think about well why were the ones which we picked, why were they the ones that carried? Why were they the ones that lasted in our mind? And that when we were able to have our discussions, they were the ones that we put forward. And whilst obviously they all have to be well-written, um, they all have to resonate, their thing, there's a huge diversity um, even on, on our list. So I think for me, rather than what unites, it's very much about the breadth and the unexpectedness as well. So there are a number of books, and maybe this will come out in the discussion, which, to be honest, I don't think I would necessarily have picked up in a bookshop, probably wouldn't have read it if I hadn't been um, judging this prize, but it turned out to be an incredibly powerful and I'm very grateful for that experience. So I think, yeah, as judges, we refresh our relationship to reading by being in a situation where we read outside of our habitual patterns. That really is interesting. And and I and I often think about this prize that in the end what we're looking for is this idea of which is the one nonfiction book that you may press into the hands of somebody that you think will be transformed uh, by that reading. Let's um let's go through the titles on the long list in alphabetical order just to let readers know what they can expect from each book. Ruth, let's start with uh, Darren Asimogalu and Simon Johnson's Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. And that subtitle, Our Thousand-Year Struggle, suggests this is a deeply ambitious book. Absolutely. Um, it's a bold new interpretation of why technology over time, uh, throughout recorded time, has all too often only benefited elites. And the argument the authors are making is that it is extremely urgent now 
for us to think about ways to reshape the path of innovation, um, by which they're really talking about artificial intelligence, and to use it to create a true shared prosperity. So it's a very, very um, directly relevant, uh, strong engagement with an enormous problem that the world is facing. And I think what the judges were particularly impressed by here is that it is focused on public policy. It's not one of those academic or, or, or general books about the state we're in, the death of democracy, all doom and gloom. It really does try to come up with some suggestions as to how we're going to make sure that artificial intelligence will augment and, and benefit the workforce rather than making the vast majority of people redundant and leaving a very, very privileged minority as the beneficiaries of those technological advancements. Well, that sounds like a, a, a book that uh, both policymakers and politicians uh, should be taking note of. Uh, Arifa, let's uh, turn to you now. And the next one uh, in the long list uh, in alphabetical order, Hannah Barnes, Time to Think, the inside story of the collapse of the Tavistock's Gender Service for Children. Tell us about this one. Well, it's essentially a medical scandal inside the Tavistock Centre. It's, it, it, you know, it's focusing on the Gender Identity Development Service. It's a flagship service, flagship centre, offering treatment and therapy. And Hannah Barnes, a, a Newsnight reporter, goes into this work and this investigation with such rigour, uh, such scrupulousness, and uncovers, you know, obfuscation, lack of data, uh, disturbing levels of silencing of anyone who, dis of any disagreement in this centre, a lack of due care or curiosity um, it, uh, in the children um, that come to, to, to seek help and to use its services. And, you know, it, it flags up issues around NHS whistleblowing, issues of overload, NHS departments being under-resourced and what can happen. And what struck me about this book, I was reluctant to enter into this book if I'm being personal, but what struck me about it, 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 it doesn't stray into the culture walls that surrounds this subject of gender identity. It doesn't enter into the Manichaean, you know, ideological debate around gender. Are you for? Are you against? She doesn't want to have or do that. She comes from a point of agreement and, and empathy, uh, I think, you know, and uh, around gender and identity. Um, and what what Hannah Barnes is doing, what this investigation is doing, incredibly. Uh, uh, rigorously is when with great integrity is is unpicking the processes in this center um you know as i said i was reluctant to pick this up because i feared it would have a, a hidden agenda and we had a very we had a very penetrating discussion around this book we felt it was a medical scan scandal of uh, well researched of immense importance flagging up a lot of questions around, you know, departments such as this, but also sort of deeper questions um, around how to 
how to care, how to care for children with gender identity issues, you know, how to best serve them. Uh, and I was turning, you know, page after page and being very shocked by what I was read. So, so we thought it was, you know, we, it's, we, it, I think it's very clear that this is not about culture wars. This isn't about grinding an axe one way or the other. It really is an inve- a thorough investigation. And that that's really very clarifying. And and the BBC reporting that that Hannah was involved with did lead to the healthcare regulator branding the department um, inadequate, which which tells you something about the scrupulousness with which the the work. Um, had been carried out. Let's move to the next one. And and Ruth, let's have you telling us a little bit more about Tanya Brannigan's uh, book, Red Memory, Living, Remembering and Forgetting China's Cultural Revolution. Well, this is a truly haunting book. Um, Tanya Brannigan was uh, the Guardian's China correspondent for seven years. And this is her book explaining um, the interviews, the research, um, the understanding that she developed in that time of the afterlife of the Cultural Revolution, um, insofar as it lives on in people's memories, in their attempts to forget. And it's an incredibly powerful engagement with that topic, which some people may think, you know, oh, we've read lots of books about the Cultural Revolution, we know what happened. But this is actually moving forward. This is how there are attempts in China to come to terms with the trauma of it and to understand it. And it's so um, vividly evoked as well. There's an there's a episode where um, Tanya Brannigan tries to visit the Museum for the Cultural Revolution, um, which when it was first opened had thousands of visitors and they sort of took away all the signposting to it and became very hard to to visit and as she's approaching it the the outer door is suddenly locked for maintenance and she is reduced to peeping in through the windows to try and see what's actually inside that museum so that's just one example of, of the personal quest um that she follows to to try and piece together just what the, the memory of those events uh still still mean in 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 their culture uh, and of course so interesting to to have a, a a book on the history of the very particular moment in in china that allows us to also look at what happens to the present when you when you don't fully confront um the the, the past in the way that tanya outlines ruth let's stay with you and, and look at another uh, history book, Christopher Clark's Revolutionary Spring, Fighting for a New World, 1848 to 1849. So focusing on just one year. Yes. Now, this is a magisterial account of the causes, the unfolding and the consequences of the European revolutions of 1848. And too often those re- revolutions are dismissed as failures. And what Christopher Clark does in sort of zooming in, uh, focusing so rigorously, so so beautifully, he's, he's a very, very compelling writer, is he's showing how those revolutions actually shaped European history, how they reverberated throughout the world. And he's very engaged 
very sensitively engage with the lives that are caught up in those social and political upheavals. This book will actually engage contemporary readers and go on to influence the accounts of European history for decades to come because he really is repositioning our understanding of European history through that lens of 1848. I loved this book too, and I didn't expect to. And doesn't he, Ruth, doesn't he make sort of these tacit connections between what was happening in that one year, uh, all the, the kind of almost like a, 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 a spread of wildfire in a way from one revolution, one radical group to the next, to the next across Europe. And he sort of draws on our more, much more recent Arab Spring and, and the way in which that was happening ha- happening as well. And um, he, he's very, very cleverly and sophisticatedly um, relates our world to then, you know, the radicalism, the hope, the activism, um, the rising up, you know, the sort of rising up against inequalities. And But he doesn't ram it in. It's not sort of crudely drawn, you know, the, the, the comparisons between now and then. Don't you think, Ruth, that there's that? I completely agree with that. Yes. So, I mean, this really is um, history at its absolute best, showing you how there are resonances between the past and the present. Um, they're not superficial. The, the, they're very, very much emerging from the story that he is reconstructing. High praise indeed. Let's stay uh, with Europe. But a, a really unusual book, this one, uh, Jeremy Eichler's Times Echo, The Second World War, The Holocaust, and The Music of Remembrance. There are, of course, hundreds of thousands of books on the Second World War, but this strikes me as being quite distinctly different. Well, you're so right. It is unusual. And you're also right. There is that the, you know. There's there's libraries of of scholarship on the Holocaust, um, and you know this part, this moment in history. Well, this was just such an astounding read. Um, it's again, it's history. History's peeping up again from our list. A history done differently, I think. History delivered through music, and music as cultural memory. That that's that's the main sort of premise. And we we see events leading up to the Second World War um, and following it um, through the prism prism of classical music, and you know you, we go through the biographies and the music of Schoenberg, Strauss, Benjamin Britten, and Shostakovich, and he explores issues around um, music and its connection to German identity and sense of self and its connection to war its connection to pacifism and whether you can be a pacifist in the in the face of you know Nazi terror or any tyranny uh, and also resistance through music as Shostakovich did in in Soviet Russia and you know this book sort of taught me that I was interested in music theory without realizing it. it's utterly yeah yeah and it's utterly compelling and not dry at all and every sentence every i mean i was I virtually underlined that you know half the book because every sent- sentence was filled with such depth and you know at the beginning we were talking about how these books at their best you know Non-fiction at its best is a lifetime's thinking and a lifetime's work, and we just felt this was full, so rich with that. 
you know. I was just saying, going back to what we were saying at the beginning, I, I'm not sure this is a book I would have necessarily picked up and I'm so grateful to have done so and I've learned enormous amount. One of the other judges uh, said she put on um, all the music whilst listening to it and definitely when I reread it uh, for, for, for the uh, shortlisting process, I'll be doing that too. That, that's what's so wonderful about this prize, really. I mean, I, I, I think it's really extraordinary that the, the transformative nature of it for the judges as well as for the potential transformation in, in, the, in the readers as they pick and choose from the long list down to the short list and the winner. Let's turn to the next book now, David Grand's The Wager, A Tale of Shipwreck, Mutiny and Murder. Um, Aretha, an extraordinary story. One that was completely unknown to me. So let's let's share the story with the with, with the listeners. It's a swashbuckling story of sailors on the high seas um, in the 18th century. You know, a story that I was so bizarre. I'd never heard of this this maritime piece of maritime history. But a fleet of sailors set off for you know imperial endeavors or a secret mission. Actually, again, it was time of you know imperial Spain, us being uh, England being at war. Um, and they set off in the wager, um, which is shipwrecked uh, off the coast of Brazil. And f- from there on in, um, in 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 the official history, there's a bit of a gap. There's a bit of a silence because some months later, there are there are you know survivors that return. Two lots of survivors with two different versions of what happened and uh, that this book it really meticulously and with real gusto takes you through what actually happened and you know the dynamic on that ship between the men between the social classes from the captains to the bog standard sort of sailors um uh, it's it's you know a story. It's almost like the Lord of the Flies. You know they end up on an island, desperate, without food, uh, not knowing how to get back. Uh, it's sort of Lord of the Flies for, for, with grown men involved, and there's such pace and adventure in in the storytelling. Um, I just defy anybody to to pick it up and then put it back down again in the middle. It's one of those that you really want to know what on earth what's happened here. How did these men get back? And how did the second lot get back? And, and who was right and who was wrong? And the, the colour in it, you know, the writer has it, it done such a job of bringing us every single tiny, you know, gra- grain of detail and colour that it's, it's quite novelistic. And, but you can tell that it's meticulously researched such a such a fabulous you know robust and and uh, um fast read well, well that does sound like a, a swashbuckling uh read indeed um, let's turn to the next book and stay with you Aretha. jennifer homer's mr b george balanchine's 20th century now this sounds just completely beautiful Yes, uh, but once again, it's sort of what Ruth mentioned at the beginning. We'll keep coming back to it in 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 the sense of um, discovery here, because I didn't know who George Balanchine was and why he was important. But you know, he was born in um, Tsarist Russia, a uh, dancer uh, as a boy, ended up you know in New York as the co-founder of the New York City Ballet, and. Um, 
the author has, you know, is a, a New Yorker dance critic, but was a former professional dancer and met Balanchine and had access to his papers and talked to everybody who knew him. You know, there's real exhaustive research in the however many pages. It's well over, you know, so 600 pages. And, um, but but what's unusual about this is it's it's a biography. It's a very detailed biography. We we, but it's more than that. It's a sort of survey of the twentieth century. So we trace his life and all, but 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 some of the lives of those he met. You know, from Diaghilev to Stravinsky to Matisse, and you get colourful stories that intersect those figures. Um, but you sort of get into bigger. You know the intersection of bigger history, the wars. You know the 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 big cultural moments. So she's really doing. She she's cut her cloth in a sort of very wide scope way, but then goes in, zooms in on beautiful, exquisite details in his life. History, as you say, rearing its head again. Uh, Ruth, let's turn to you and uh, a portrait of a country now. Katja Hoyer, Beyond the Wall, East Germany. 1949 to 1900. Yes, more history here. Um, Katia Hoya is a young, uh, highly acclaimed historian, and she's written a mesmerizing account of a country that disappeared. So when the Iron Curtain fell and East Germany ceased to exist. And she's done this um, capturing the radically different German identity that existed at that time. Um, unlike anything that had existed before or exists since. So he's focusing on the socialist solidarity, the secret police, the central planning, the barbed wire, but also on the details of everyday life, Um, the drinking of coffee, where the coffee came from, uh, what it was like to, to live there. And it's a really, really immersive uh, panoramic sweep that, that restores, um, without any nostalgia, that sense of a country that was so much more than simply the, the Stasi and the repression. It does sound like a, a brilliant companion piece to a former winner of the prize, Anna Funder's um, Stasiland, but, but as you say... Uh, tells us uh, lots more than than just the, the secret police. Ruth, let's stay with you and turn to Tia Miles. More history here, but very, very particular and very focused on a family uh, connected to slavery in the United States. All that she carried, the history of a black family keepsake, lost and found. So this is a brilliant book and it has already been decorated by many prizes. Um, even so, it absolutely had to be on our list. Um, it's a book about maternal and familial love and its power to survive in the hardest of circumstances. And instead of focusing on historical argumentation, Tia Miles meditates. The whole book was really a meditation on a single sack that was given by an enslaved woman called Rose to her nine-year-old daughter, Ashley, as she was sold away from her in the 1850s in South Carolina. And the sack was inherited by Ashley's granddaughter, Ruth, who embroidered it with their story. 
The sack was later lost and eventually found again for posterity. So Tia Miles invites the reader to think about the way love falls out of the historical narratives. And she shows us that there are ways to recover what is the most personal, precious and painful for the historical record. It's an innovative, uncompromising and very much life-affirming book. It's interesting, isn't it, when you when you think that everything that can have been written about slavery in the United States maybe has been written and somebody comes along and finds a very particular detail relating to one family that that, that brings it to life in a in a, in an original way. Uh, let's turn to uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee, The Song of the Cell, an exploration of medicine and the new human. I think the first science book that we're talking about so far. Ruth, let's turn to you. Yes, so this is very vivid, uh, thrilling, full of suspense and focused on the fundamental unit of life, the cell. Um, it's got a panoramic and intimate at the same time, so... We move from the explanation, very, very clear, very, very easy to follow for, for, for the general reader of the cell and, and, it, and its place in biological understanding. We move from that to these riveting accounts of actual patients, of actual medical discoveries. Um, it's rich with stories of scientists, doctors, and the patients whose lives have been saved through through the work of those doctors and medical researchers. Um, I love the fact that it begins with uh, Robert Hooke in the 17th century, looking down his microscope and seeing the cells and understanding they're like little boxes. And it goes right up to the present day with the cutting-edge cell uh, therapeutic practices and, and research that are transforming the treatments of, of cancers and, and other illnesses. So a really, really impressive work of, of, of popular, popular science. Wonderful. Let's uh, turn to you, Aretha, now. And Nathan Thrall, A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, A Palestine Story. Yeah, and Abed Salama is a father um, whose young son gets caught up in a terrible road accident. I won't say much more. I don't want to give it away, to give too much away. It's a school trip and in a coach. And there's real horror there. And through that day, this is a, this is a book um, across just 24 hours of Ab Ab Abed Salama's life and the life of his family, you know, uh, his children, his wife, his parents, the Palestinian community around him. Uh, the Israeli, the Israelis further afield, Israeli officials, um, and the Israeli state, and we we go from daily life and history is wo woven quite organically into that into this twenty four hours, um, we, you know. And following his footsteps, we feel the trauma of being a Palestinian in. An Israeli state that is is a state is, through this book. It's, it it seems clear that there's a state of apartheid going on and real dehumanization of the of Palestinians. There's real state violence. Um, there's a herding of Palestinians in 
in what essentially seemed like open prisons uh, surrounded and enclosed. And it's so sad. It really saddened me. And it's very clever to distill um, history and politics through 24 hours and through such a personal prism. Um, and it, it, there, are com- there are some moments when you feel, you know, there's compassionate um, Israelis that help um, in, this, in this road crash. And then there's true horrors. Um, and and you know we we were really struck by the power of it, uh, and in a in a moment, um, I think you know personally where this story really is being overlooked, where there's real really um, atrocious silence around what's happening in this part of the world. It, it does sound like a, a, a an original way of tackling what um, is always a, a contested subject, let alone a contested. History. Uh, thank you for that, Arifa. Let's turn to the penultimate book that we're talking about today. Uh, Chris Van Tullican's Ultra Processed People Why Do We All Eat Stuff That Isn't Food and Why We Can't Stop? The title did make <laughs> me laugh. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, Arifa, let's, yes. uh, let's get you to explain what this is about. I thought this would be a book about clean eating and, you know, um, and I, I'm, I'm a eater of processed food and I, I have no qualms <laughs> about it I, I think we're all busy people and I think in all this purity around food is rather I think for me um, quite annoying um, uh, this book really did chill me it's about food at its most political uh, food as an industry uh, as a mega industry as a form of global imperialism really it begins small it begins with um, the author, uh, wondering, he's bought a, a, an ice cream cone. He's wondering why the, the ice cream won't melt. And then he's looking at his daughter and she, and he's watching her eat Cocoa Pops in quite a compulsive way. One, you know, one bowl after the other and she's unstoppable. And this leads on to looking at food, looking what we're uh, not at. There's a real distinction that he makes between processed food and ultra processed food. Ultra processed food is stuff that we think is food, but it, but there's molecules of food in it, and uh, but it's heavily modified, uh, and and really it's augmented by smell and flavour, and it's addictive and it's cheap, and he ties this ultra processed kind of uh, strata of food with inequality, poverty, capitalism. You know, multinational takeovers. This is all form of multinational colonialism, um, and, and the go- global me- mega industry around food, around this fake food, ultra processed food. It 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 rebounds. It impacts climate. Climate is a massive part of this book's remit. I was just horrified. I was truly, truly horrified. It it became this bedside read. Um, that was so horrifying, I, I read late into the night. I couldn't quite believe that this was real. It was the stuff of dystopia, honestly. And um, and it's it's really not just telling us to eat in a healthier way. Not at all. It's doing something much bigger. But did it help you eat in a healthier way? Well, just to say that the tone of the book is the opposite of preachy. Um, there's, he's not telling you what to do, and he's quite jaunty. He even invites you to to eat along with the book. 
we kind of challenged the data. If you were thinking about giving up ultra processed food, don't do that now. Just eat along with the book and see how you feel when you get to the end of it. And I, that's the kind of doctor I love, actually. You know, I need to know this, um, but it's up to you. Ultimately, you know, you make your own decisions about that. So I, I, I love the tone, and uh, obviously the content is, um, is, is very, very interesting and, and important for, for everyone. Well, let's turn to our final book now, and and nothing could be more urgent than climate change. This is uh, John Valent, Fireweather, The Making of a Beast, Arifa. It's a really exciting read, as well as being utterly urgent. Um, it's, it's focusing on one devastating Canadian, Canadian wildfire, and it's sort of an anatomy of that enormous fire, its devastation, its history, it's bigger global context, um, and through it you get a history of the oil industry, and you know it's it's written with pace and and well with the pace and plot of a sort of almost like a crime thriller, a corporate crime thriller. It's a real page turner, and this fire really comes al- alive as well. So it, you know, I would. I th- I think this is such a a subject of our time. Um, the foreign uh, concerned uh, was in 2016, and when you're reading the book, you're both completely gripped by the details of that specific fire, but also aware of the fact that between 2016 and 2023, this debate has really really escalated. I had um, you know the the presence of those fires that we've seen over over the summer um, for the second year running in in Europe uh, absolutely and beyond you know that wherever there are these fires now it's very fascinating to think that you know back in 2016 this is almost the beginning of understanding that they are dealing with something new that this you know there's a there's lots of technical descriptions of it why the why the fire breaks didn't work um, how fast the fire can move, you know, that it can actually cover a mile in a minute and that it's not just the mile that the fire covers, but it's spewing like a volcano, all the embers from the top of it, so the, the range and the size. And the other detail that has really, really struck me and, and stayed with me is the detail that these um, bitumen mines um, in in Alberta, uh, where the fire um took place uh, in, in, in a place called Fort, Fort McMurray, those mines are actually visible like a scar on the face of the earth from high, high up in, in space. And the author gives this very chilling description of, you know, at that distance, what you cannot see on the face of the earth, but you can see those mines and that scarring and that specific location where this sort of trailblazing warning um, of what the the whole world is going to have to start to face up to when so it's a it's absolutely brilliant pretty horrifying but also totally totally engaging but well the readers of any Bailey Gifford uh, prize long list or short list are not people who bury their heads in the sand so um, thank you both very much indeed for a brilliant overview of the 13 books that you have chosen. I'm just going to give us uh, uh, all a list of 
of things that are coming up and so on. But just before we go, we've we've this amazing overview of the books that you've chosen. I want to turn to you, Aretha, because a couple of years ago you were on the long list as a writer. So I wonder I wonder if you'll just share with us what that felt like as a writer to be told that you were on the long list. God. So I um it was a true surprise. I remember I hadn't been given any hints. And then I just woke up to this news. Um, I felt so emotional. It was my first book. It was a very personal book. I felt so um, endorsed in the, in the sense that it gave me quite a lot of confidence um, as a writer. You know, I'm a journalist of over 20 years, but I'm not, you know, I, I'm, I wasn't confident as, as an author of a book. And I think it did something. It, it was such a gift. It was such a lovely gift you know and um i don't think it you know aside from all those marvelous things that it does for the publisher and for sales and for recognition and branding and it does do all those things they're incredibly important it, it had quite a lot of emotional value for me i've always thought of Bailey gift as the ultimate you know in nonfiction. and how wonderful that it was for your first book too Aretha. how extraordinary and by some magical symmetry, we happen to also have found out that, Ruth, when the prize was the Samuel Johnson Prize, you were also long-listed. Can you remember what that felt like and, and, and what was going through your mind in, in, in those days? Well, I agree with Aristotle. Um, it was absolutely transformative affirmation for someone writing their first book. Um, you know, before you've written a book, you don't have any idea whether or not you can do it and promise the publisher that you're going to do it. And then to be recognized, to be put on a, a prestigious long list, um, like the uh, Samuel Johnson Prize, as it was, and now obviously Bailey Gifford Prize, absolutely magical experience. Well, that is so wonderful to, to be speaking to two authors who were long-listed for uh, the, the prize that you are now judging. It's just such a wonderful piece of symmetry. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you, Arifa, for, for being with us today. And, and really a moment just to congratulate all the writers on the long list and to congratulate the judges for having come up with the long list. Um, Arifa, Ruth, thank you both very much. As always, we'd again like to thank the Blavatnik Family Foundation for its continued generous support of this podcast. Now, the announcement of the six books on the shortlist, because these judges, along with the others, are going to have to whittle them down to six. Uh, for this year's £50,000 prize will take place in a live event at the Cheltenham Literature Festival on Sunday, October the 8th. There are still a few tickets available if you'd like to go along to that. There'll also be a special episode of the podcast recorded at the festival, which will air after the event. The winner of this year's Baby Gifford Prize will be announced on the 16th of November at a gala dinner at the Science Museum in London that, like this podcast, is generously sponsored by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. This winner announcement will also be live streamed across all the Baby Gifford Prize, the non-fiction social channels. If you're interested in finding out more about the long-listed books, you can visit the website or follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at BG Prize. Thanks so much for listening. Until the next time, bye-bye.
Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Non-Fiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.